Hello, this is the God Story Podcast. I'm Brent Siddle, and I'm joined once again by my co-host, Ian Reid, Rido, the Reverend Ian Reid of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. In these stormy times, voices from all fronts call for change. But what kind of revolution brings true freedom to both soul? Hmm. Our guest on the show this time is Oz Guinness, who's here to talk about his new IVP America book called The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. Oz explores the nature of revolutionary faith, contrasting between secular revolutions such as the French Revolution and the faith-led revolution of ancient Israel. He argues that the story of Exodus is the highest, richest and deepest vision for freedom in human history. End of quote. Oz is the author or editor of more than 35 books. He's the founder of the Trinity Forum, a prominent social critic and a frequent speaker who has addressed audiences worldwide. And Oz and Ian join me now. Hello to you both. Thank you so much for having me. A pleasure to be with you both. Oh, it's always an honor to have you, Oz. Now, you've witnessed at least one revolution, and I was fascinated to read your account in, in the book of uh, your boyhood experience at the age of seven, watching the Chinese Revolution. Now, what are some of your memories of that? I well remember as a seven-year-old the day my dad said to me, some were in trouble. Chiang Kai-shek has abandoned the city and we're at the mercy of the Red Army. So I was there in Nanking and there for the first two years of the reign of terror. So it's pretty vivid in my mind. Yes, and years later at Oxford, I was fascinated to read, you came to know um, Isaiah Berlin, and he'd witnessed the Russian Revolution uh, at the same age as you witnessed the Chinese one. Uh, what were his memories of 1917? Well, I was fascinated to discover that, because obviously a very eminent philosopher of freedom. But when we had dinner the first time, he was describing how as a seven-year-old in the Russian Revolution, he was marked by a, an incident where the mob, the red mob, attacked and lynched a, a policeman. And he never forgot the horror of that violence. So he lived through that. And much of what he said was over against the Russian Revolution. What did the two revolutions have in common, do you think, China and Russia? Well, I would argue if you look at the big five, people leave out the English. The English, the American, the French, the Russian, the Chinese. The first two looked different because the English failed and the American succeeded. But actually, they're not just English speaking. They both came out of their roots in the Bible. And that's the whole story. Whereas the French and the Russian and the Chinese were anti-religious, anti-biblical, anti-Christian. Solzhenitsyn used to say that the hatred of God is deeper in Marxism and the radical left than even their politics and their economics. Yeah, how do the French Revolution and the American Revolution differ? Well, the American Revolution came first, 1776. But look at the differences. The American Revolution came from the Bible, as I said, largely, sadly, not fully, think of slavery, whereas the French Revolution came from the French Enlightenment. They had radically different views of humanity. So the biblical revolutions, with their realistic views of sin, have notions like the separation of powers and checks and balances. Very, very realistic. Whereas the French Revolution is utopian. And there's a link between utopianism in revolution and violence. 
And you could go on right down the line. The current big difference is over justice. In what ways is America's freedom the legacy of the Sinai Covenant? Well, you know, when Rome declared the Christian faith to be the official religion under Theodosius in 380 AD, it said that the church made a bad mistake by copying Roman structures for the church. So Rome had the, the, the uh, Caesar, the consuls, the senators, and the church had the pope and the cardinals and the bishops, and they were hierarchical. And of course, you know the famous saying by Lord Acton, all power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He was a Catholic criticizing his own church for its hierarchical government because hierarchy is based on power and power is corruptible. And you have the Inquisition and all sorts of horrors. The Reformation said, no, that wasn't the biblical way. And beginning with Calvin, Bullinger, Zwingli, uh, John Knox in Scotland, Oliver Cromwell in England, there was a massive exploration of what the 17th century called the Hebrew Republic. In other words, God's own good society set up in the book of Exodus. And the key notion there is not power, it's covenantal understanding. And so they developed it from there. And that became, for example, covenant in America became constitution. And you could go on down the line. In what ways do you argue that Exodus is the master story of human freedom? Well, some people get very upset about that. But if you think for a minute, politically, what are the great classics? Well, Plato, Aristotle, Machiavelli, John Stuart Mill, and so on. But people are now beginning to realize that Exodus, along with Deuteronomy, is very much a classic of freedom and politics. Not only uh, in, in theory, but they put their stamp on the 17th century in ways that linger down to our own time. So if you take the revolutions and freedom movements that come out, say, even Thomas uh, Jefferson and Ben Franklin, neither of whom were Christians, they both thought the Exodus should be the seal of the US. Or you take Go Down Moses and the great impact of the revolution on the Negro spirituals. Or you think of Latin American liberation theology, for better or worse. Many of the greatest movements for freedom were sparked by Exodus and Deuteronomy. Let my people go. But that's a simple word, far, far more than that slogan. Mm. Well, let's come on and look at some of the points you make in the book. You have seven principles, don't you, if I remember rightly. Why does freedom require authority, do you think? Well, you've got to base freedom somewhere. And the simple fact is, you look around the world today, many of the leading secularist thinkers, Freud, Marx, J.B. Watson, B.F. Skinner, down to the modern new atheists like uh, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, they are all to a man, determinists. Using the scientific method alone, you cannot find freedom based on the scientific method. The fact is the only solid basis for freedom is in the biblical notion of humans made in the image and likeness of God and the way that's un unpacked in the Bible. So you need something that gives you the basis for your freedom, and it's simply not there in many of the secular alternatives, nor in the Eastern religions like Hinduism. How must freedom be grounded and authorized? Well, obviously, for those of us who follow Jesus and our Jewish friends, 
It's grounded in that great Genesis declaration that every single human being is made in the image and likeness of God. Now, a lot of Christians, I think, are wrong there. They say, well, that's true, but after the fall, we lost freedom altogether. That's not so. There certainly is a bondage of the will to sin. But if you notice after the fall, for example, the Lord speaking to Cain, he challenges Cain to choose with temptation lurking at the door, and Cain chooses badly. Clearly, the Lord assumes that he was able to choose. Or you take Moses as he hands over Israel to his successor. I put before you blessings and curses, life and death, choose life. In other words, the Bible does assume that even after the fall, certainly before, humans made in the image of God have the capacity to choose. Fine. There are consequences for that choice. Now, you're right. Um, Ian, before we carry on, do you want to put a question forward? Oh, sure. Yeah. What, what future do you think uh, freedom has? You know, kind of people are, are talking about this across the Western world, that we're losing our freedom. Uh, and even you know, I've seen some commentary from people saying that, that the concept of freedom is a white supremacist kind of idea. To me, it sounds ridiculous because the world that we we, we live in and, and the, the great things that we all experience are all based on these earlier revolutions, but particularly flowing out, out from the Reformation. The concepts that, that flow out of that around freedom are so important for us as a society. Well, that freedom as the freedom is a means, not an end. The capacity to choose so that we're able to be ourselves, to think freely, to speak freely, to act freely. Now, there are obvious degrees of that. You can ruin it by becoming, say, addic addicted, uh, and all sorts of things you can ruin it through. But that capacity is at the heart of the freedom of each of us to be the humans that we're born to be, or as we'd say as Christians, we are created to be. It's a very precious thing. And those who dismiss it as white supremacy or the legacy of dead white European males, it's absolutely undermined something that is profoundly important to humanity. And thank God for great black defenders of freedom. It is not just a white or a European idea. It's a universal human longing. Yes, I, really, I think you're right at one point that we've almost got a false idea of freedom in, in the modern West that's become toxic. What do you mean by that? Well, there are numerous specious or quite inadequate and sometimes dangerous views of freedom. For example, Lord Acton again, freedom is not the permission to do what you like. It's the power to do what you ought. Or Isaiah Berlin again, freedom is not only negative, freedom from freedom from a bully, freedom from colonial power, freedom from addiction. It's positive. Freedom for, freedom to be. So there are all sorts of inadequate, uh, deceitful views of freedom. So we've got to be, those of us who love Jesus and the scriptures, the champions and defenders of a biblical view of freedom. It's the deepest, it's the most realistic. You write that we need to be realistic that we need to be realistic about human nature. And in fact, our view of freedom must be realistic. Now, what do you mean by that? Well, one of the features of freedom, I call it the paradox of freedom. The greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. In other words, unless you live the way that freedom itself requires, it goes wrong. 
and there are all sorts of reasons why that happens. And I've got a chapter on that in yet another book. But we, we as Christians should be very, very realistic. I'm going to divert for a minute because I was fascinated. You have a section in your book on Ayn Rand and her objectivism, her objectivist philosophy. You write that Ayn Rand's objectivism is Nietzscheanism in a pinstripe suit. Wonderful phrase. (laughs) (laughs) Would you like to elaborate on that, please? Well, she, of course, was an atheist. And all you have left is that will to power asserted. So there was an individualistic egotism about Ayn Rand, and you can see it in Atlas Shrugged and so on. The great entrepreneurs were fine, and the devil takes the rest of us, and so on. So she was very dangerous in her thinking. And I know many people who like her philosophy when it comes to economics, but as they look into the book and see how it touches relationships, so a family should have freedom and dependency and trust in each other, but she didn't believe in dependency at all. And some of her relationships are extremely cruel, and you have that in her books. And so her philosophy considered as a whole is extremely dangerous and inhuman. Does freedom need to be one, do you think? That's an essential Christian idea. We're not naturally free. In other words, to be free, we have to be set free. Now, we know as Christians, the deepest thing from which we need to be set free is the deepest thing affecting us, which is the power of sin. But anyone who's under any control, I mentioned earlier, a bully in the playground, or an alcoholic uh, who's addicted to drink or drugs, or a a colonial person who's under the rule of some uh, some, uh, boot in some part of the world, they're not free. And to be free, We have to be set free. So that's the beginning we start with as Christians, defining freedom, but acknowledging that to be free, we have to be set free. Yes. Why does freedom live by covenants, do you think? Well, you know, the Greek way of looking at politics was to look at governments, monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, and all of them have an ideal form and a corrupt form. But about 50 years ago, a Jewish scholar, Daniel Elzar, said, no, we got to look not at covenant and not at governments, but at societies. And if you look at societies, there are basically three organic, those that are linked by blood and kinship, like an African tribe or a country like the Lebanon or Scottish clan, and they're relatively rare in the modern world. The second is the major category, hierarchical, I mentioned earlier, linked by power. But the third is the rare one, and the one where you have the most freedom, covenantal. People who are joined by a covenantal common agreement between the people. So that's what you have in Exodus. And there are three very simple features in Exodus which made a great difference to people who followed Exodus. First, you had freely chosen consent. Three times the Lord puts out the covenant, and it said, all that the Lord says, we will do. Now, as even when the master of the universe puts out his way of doing it, it doesn't become real until they sign on. The second feature was a morally binding pledge, commitment, much more than a contract. And the third was a reciprocal sense of responsibility of everyone for everyone. You love your neighbor as yourself. You deal with the sojourner, the stranger in the country, the way you were dealt with the strangers and so on. That reciprocity. So that covenantal is, gives you the highest view of freedom. Now, of course, it requires certain things. It requires truth. 
it requires promise keeping. If people don't keep their word, and that's the problem with covenantalism, and you can see it in the Bible, the Lord keeps his word forever. And we break ours all the time, whether in politics or in marriages or whatever it is. So it's the human failure to keep a promise that is the Achilles heel of, uh, of covenantalism. And that's the problem you see in America today. The people are no longer keeping their promise to the original covenant. You write a lot about Rabbi Sachs in the book. I think he was one of the figures who inspired this. But, And the Jewish people have been particularly good at this, celebrating and handing on traditions. This is a fascinating part of your discussion. Why, why do you think freedom needs to be celebrated and handed on, passed on to the next generations? Well, I love that. You know, the rabbis mm. point out, the night of the Passover, they're going free. 430 years of slavery. Tonight, they're going free. Moses never mentions freedom. They're going to the promised land, the land of milk and honey they've been longing for. He doesn't mention it. Three times, Moses talks about children, because the story we tell to our children is the secret to the ongoing identity and continuity. In other words, faith goes on that way, freedom goes on that way, unless they're transmitted generation to generation, they break down. And that's certainly the problem in America today, sadly, both in the church in terms of faith and in the country in terms of freedom. We've broken down in terms of transmission. I love um, Rabbi Sachs' quote, which I think, I think I've written it down here. You quoted in the book, the primacy of the heart has always been the secret of the Jews. Oh, wonderful, wonderful comment. Well, again, I love that. And of course, that should fit in very well with our Christian and evangelical understanding. You take, say, the famous painting by Holman Hunt, The Light of the World, Jesus knocking at the door, but there's no handle on the door. It has to be open from the inside. Or to put it in terms of the rabbis, they used to say, or one rabbi said to his students, is God everywhere? And the student, of course, of course, of course. No, he isn't, they said. He's not in a human heart unless he's invited in. And of course, that's the thing, a point where Jews and Christians share that. The heart comes first, and we've got to open our hearts, and the freedom begins in the heart, and it dies in the heart. Mm, absolutely. Ian, before we carry on, another question from you? I think the, the par when, when you read the Gospels, there, there's almost this uh, kind of the parallel thing going on with the, with the Exodus narrative, with Jesus kind of heading towards Jerusalem, that everyone's expecting him to, to create this great revolution. But he, and kind of he does create a great revolution, but it's never in the way that we expect. And it's, it's kind of parallels the Exodus movement, doesn't it? And that it's the kind of the fulfillment of the Exodus movement, of the, of the great revolution that we're hoping for, but it's in a way that is just so different to the world's revolutions around yeah. us. It's, it's yeah. not against, it's, it's the defeat of a power in a different, in a different way. No, I love the fact, Ian, you're an expert here, not me, I'm not a theologian. But in the account of the transfiguration, I think it's in Luke, it says Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah about his, the Greek word is Exodus. And many of our English translations talk about his departure. But I actually think he meant his exodus, because the cross is the third exodus. You have the first exodus coming out of Egypt. You have the second exodus, the exile ending exodus from Babylon and the restoration to their homeland. But that didn't deal with the deepest problem of sin. 
And Calvary, of course, is the great exodus. Ian, do you want to respond to that? No, and I, th- and I think the the gospel writers, particularly Mark, I think it is, he kind of, there's this undertone of re- revolution, you know, kind of this is what people are expecting. But it's just the the deeper revolution that actually needs to happen, the deeper exodus that ne- really needs to happen is so emphasised uh, th- through the gospels, particularly the, the placement of when Calvary happens. You know, it's it's kind of the in the Passover moment that as they're you're kind of celebrating that meal, it's actually there's a deeper thing that really needs to happen that both of the Exodus and the exile couldn't deal with, which is the problem with their hearts. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. And I love, go down to, say, Acts 17, where the charge against the Apostle Paul is these men who've turned the world upside down have come here. In other words, the Christians were the revolutionaries. But the 17th century, as they explored that, and this is part of that biblical century and their fascination with the Hebrew Republic, you know, God creates order, humans create disorder. So when God works in a disordered world, he turns it upside down. But in fact, he's turning it the right way up. Mm -hmm. So we have a very profound view of revolution. And of course, the left-wing revolutions from the French Revolution on all depend on power. Whereas clearly, as you're saying, Ian, the cross depends on the upside-down subversion of that through powerlessness. Yes, and I think if we're exploring the radical left in the States today, as as you say, Oz, uh, they are definitely, this is definitely counter-revolutionary. It's very different to what we're seeing play out. We see a lot of resentment-filled radicalism today. This is part of what you're writing about in the book. But you argue that freedom always needs to address wrongs, but in the right way. Now, I love that. What do you what do you mean by addressing wrongs, but in the right way? Well, put it like this, uh, Brent. You know, the great Swiss historian Burkhardt said in the 19th century that whenever you have unaddressed evils left unaddressed, they're like an unexploded minefield left after a war. And some innocent citizen may stumble on them or an enemy can detonate them. That's what we're seeing in America and many other parts of the Western world. We've had unaddressed evils, and they're lying around, and the left wing are detonating them and exploiting them in their direction. Now, their way of doing it is entirely different from the gospel. They look at speech to see who's the powerful, who's the weaker, who's the oppressor, who's the victim, and then set up a conflict of powers. But remember, to the left, the Lord is dead, God is dead, and truth is dead. So all you have left, operating principle, power. So you're setting up a a clash of power against power. And as the Romans pointed out, that can only end in one thing, the peace of despotism. In other words, you have a power so powerful, it can put down every other power. But that's totalitarianism. That's the wrong way. Whereas the biblical way is quite different. And if you follow through the way the prophets address power or the New Testament addresses power and evil, we have a completely different way with a call truth addressed to power and repentance and confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. I'm using single words. Unpack each of those with half an hour. And you have a very, very different way of addressing wrongs. Yes. Final question, I fear. We're fast running out of time, and you've probably already answered this, Oz. I think you have. But uh, you write about the French Revolution a lot, 
And we see that the, the radical left these days are clearly heirs of the French Revolution. So in what ways was the French Revolution then the basis for a lot of what we're seeing in our modern world? Well, I follow historians like James Billington on this. The French Revolution only lasted 10 years. Then came Napoleon, the revolution is over. But like a volcanic explosion, the lava flows have flowed out ever since across the world. The first one we needn't bother with, but the main lava flow in the 19th century, breaking out in the 20th century, is revolutionary socialism or communism, China today. But what the West is facing, certainly America, is the third lava flow, often called cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism or user-friendly Marxism, critical theory, and so on. And that's what we need to grapple with today. Because when I came to faith in 1960, the great challenge was liberal revisionism in theology. And most Catholics and most evangelicals stood firm. They didn't surrender to liberal revisionism. And of course, it's run out into the sands, and that part of the church has committed institutional suicide. But what we're facing is things like the red wave, cultural Marxism, the rainbow wave, uh, the sexual revolution, and Christians have caved into that to a degree that would have been unthinkable a few years ago, and it's certainly shameful. One of the things I was fascinated to read about, and indeed I remember from my uh, university teaching on the French Revolution, was that they renamed everything. They got rid of the church, and they got rid of Christianity, and they renamed everything. I was, and I thought, where have we seen that? <laughs> We're not seeing that today, are we? It, the parallels were just so, so clear. Thank you, Oz. Ian, before we close, final comments, thoughts for Oz? I, my big question is, is where... Where does this head? You know, kind of, we, there does need to be, there is a, a slow revolution happening kind of around us, you know, very slowly, as I think particularly freedom is being taken away. Where does that eventually head? And how, is the church, how does the church kind of hold back from that and uh, hold firm in a way, but still listens to people and their concerns? Well, my hope is that we'll have leadership and people who rise to follow the leadership. So we really, just as Moses says, choose life. The challenge in much of the West today is choose freedom, but knowing what it is and what it requires. But God forbid, say the wokeism, the radical left and so on, win the day, which they have in many areas like the universities. I'm saying God forbid. You would have a Western world newly radicalized facing a Chinese world long radicalized, in other words, the two major powers in the world would both be authoritarian. Hmm. And that would be extremely disastrous for the world. We've got to wake up and turn to the Lord and turn around while there's time. Hmm. Os Guinness, fascinating as always. Thank you so much, so much to talk about. We only just scrape the surface of this uh, IVP America book, The Magna Carta of Humanity, Sinai's Revolutionary Faith and the Future of Freedom. Thank you to my co-host, Rito, Ian Reid, King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and who take care of things behind the scenes. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you. God bless. We really hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. If you want to help us make more great episodes like this one, you can head over to our Patreon page and become a God Story Podcast supporter. You'll receive our undying gratitude, plus a few bonus goodies for your ongoing support. 
Just visit patreon.com slash godstorypodcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash godstorypodcast. As always, you can get in touch with us via our website, godstorypodcast.com.